Well, again, uh, good morning. Welcome to Potomac Hills. My name is Frank Wong. I'm the associate pastor here. If you're new or if it's been a while, uh, it's good to see you. Please don't run out after. Please do come to the fellowship lunch so that we can uh, either reacquaint with you or get to know you just a little bit. Uh, If you're new or you've just forgotten, which is sometimes the case with me, uh, we're finishing up our series on bringing back the wanderer this morning. We'll be in John uh, 21. I know I said 15 to 19 in my weekly thought, but we'll be starting in verse 1 and going all the way to 19, uh, which really covers Jesus' third appearance to the disciples and Peter's restoration after his denial. And as you're turning there, I think it's worth looking back at the past four weeks' worth of sermons. We started everything by looking at wanderers in general and the call to bring them back to the faith. And it's hard not only for those who have been left behind, but also for the wanderers themselves. Even though wandering is not a pleasant experience, um, though it can feel like you're getting exactly what you want at the time, You see, when you wander, you can lose a sense of home, of connection, and of perspective. And everything is about you. And when it's that case, when everything is about you, you and I tend to mess things up, to make a big mess of everything. And we can end up isolated, hurt, tired, and feeling trapped in our circumstances, trapped by the consequences of our own actions we wake up realizing that things are, in fact, pretty terrible. And so that's what this series has been about, understanding how and why we wander, how we can come to the end of ourselves and have have our eyes open to the reality of our sinfulness, how we can uh, return and repent, and how we can receive wanderers back. We've looked at Samson, Thomas, and the prodigal son. We've looked at sensuousness, doubts, and willfulness as the leading causes for wandering. And it's been a heavy month. Uh, It's been a sad month because this topic hits so close to home for so many of us. Just this past Tuesday, um, during the session's monthly prayer meeting, the session, sort of not with any plan to do this, but just sort of spontaneously, we just started talking about folks that have wandered in our lives, folks that we have known over the years at Potomac Hills that have wandered away from the faith. And so we spent the better part of about 45 minutes just sort of talking about them and expressing our care and love for them and lamenting that they were wandering. And then we spent the better part of another 45 minutes praying for those wanderers, that they would come back. The topic of wandering and wanderers is so emotionally charged because these are people that we love. It sometimes feels overwhelming and just far too difficult that it's impossible. And yet, let us not despair. For this morning's passage shows us what restoration looks like. It shows us that there is, in fact, victory, that there is, in fact, hope for us as we uh, think about our wanderers. So let's read John 21, verses 1 to 19. We'll be looking... Um, at all, all the verses, but looking primarily at 15 to 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. 
Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught absolutely nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the close of a month looking at your wanderers, Lord, would you encourage us? Encourage us that restoration is in fact possible through you. And Lord, as we do the hard work of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration, Lord, I pray that you would enable us to see you through it all. And Lord, as we come to this passage where we look at Peter I pray that you would show us your gospel and show us how you restored Peter, that we might learn how to approach your wanderers with love and with grace. And so, Lord, be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want to start with a story. Um, I want to tell you about a friend that I had when I first got uh, to Northern Virginia about 15 years ago. He and I were in a post-bac program together, post-college, um, thinking about faith and vocation. 
and uh, we got to be really fast friends and really good friends. And it was a nine-month program, and so there were some rules because it was also a co-ed program. And so there were some rules about dating uh, within the cohort, which basically boiled down to just don't, okay? Just don't. And we actually had to sign contracts before the program started saying that we would abide by these rules for the duration of the program. And now, unfortunately for my friend, you can see where this is going, he decided about five to six months in that he wanted to date one of these girls, and so he and she started dating. Um, this is about like January or February so of the, of, uh, of the program. And it got to, you know, to a certain extent, the rest of the cohort were like, yeah, whatever. But it got to the point where it was just becoming uncomfortable because they were so openly flouting something that they had promised not to do. And so being his best friend in the group, the other members of the cohort came to me and said, Frank, you got to talk to him. I said, great, this is lovely. I just want to do this so much. And so I went. And the conversation went really poorly. Um, he basically stood up um, after I basically called him out and um, as gently as I could, and he said, who do you think you are to ask me to stop dating this girl? Who do you think you are? And then he basically cut me off for the rest of the program, which ran till about May. And he also managed to turn a, a fair number of the cohort against me as well. He didn't speak to me for the rest of that summer. It was about six months in all. And predictably, at the end of that summer, he and this girl ended up breaking up because they weren't in this hyper-close community 24-7. Uh, and at the time, I was also hosting uh, a weekly young adult dinner. And my friend had been attending throughout uh, that time. And he stopped when we had our falling out. And about six months in uh, to our breaking or sort of falling out, he started attending again. It was like super awkward. Um, but my friend had to return to me. And it was, it was uh, there was joy in my heart that he had come back to me and he wanted to restore our relationship. But things weren't the same, even after he had admitted that he was wrong about what he did. Because while he had, not, he had acknowledged what was wrong, he hadn't really taken the time to have a conversation with me about how he, how he had treated me. And it took, about a, it took a few weeks after he had returned for us to have that conversation, and thankfully that conversation went much better, and he, his and my relationship was restored. And so this morning, that's what we're trying to look at. What happens when our wanderers come back? So much of our time has been spent thinking about why wanderers drift and leave and how they come back. And, uh, but what we also need to talk about is what to do when they actually return. In some ways, this is part two to last week's sermon about the prodigal son. There in Luke 15, we can see that repentance, return, and restoration are in fact not the same thing, that they are distinct. Repentance comes when the prodigal comes to his sentence his senses, and he correctly realizes that he doesn't deserve to go back to his father as a son. And really, he, he only hopes to be welcomed as a servant. And even that was a slim hope for him because of all the relational baggage that he brought with him. 
And so we see repentance, we see a turning from his ways and a journey back home. And we also see his return, we get his return. And what a return it is with the father running to him and embracing him and celebrating his prodigal's return, giving him a robe, a ring, and a fattened calf to celebrate. It is a joyful reunion filled with celebration, but what we still don't quite have is restoration. There are still big relational issues to work through. The the wanderer hasn't fully reconciled with his father, nor confronted the relational consequences and fallout of his sin. It is here that we see that the warm welcome, the warm welcome is necessary to even get to the point where we can have relational reconciliation. The welcome provides a foundation for the reconciliation and uh, restoration work to begin. The father rightly understands that his son needs to know that not only could he come home, but that this would be his home as well. So not only that he can come home, but that he is, this is, this, this is his home, that he's not just sort of some stranger that has returned. He needs to restore relationship before he could work on restoring intimacy. But this road to restoration is never clean and never easy. It's usually messy, hard, painful, and filled with not a few tears. And it's also rarely smooth. There are starts and stops, setbacks and relapses, and more than a few bumps along the way. It's also not inevitable. And that's important for us to hear, especially those of us that have not wandered. It's not inevitable that you are restored even when they return. You see, if you're the wanderer, the work doesn't end when you return. It's really just the beginning, and it can go south at really any point. And so reconciliation and restoration are risky endeavors from the perspective of the wanderer. If we think about our sin, we realize that we don't really have a leg to stand on when we're wanderers. We can't demand anything, least of all to demand restoration. At every step along the way in our return, there is a choice between wrathful justice, which gets its pound of flesh, and grace. There is always a choice at every step of whether or not this is going to keep going down a road of grace or if I'm going to receive that which I deserve. And by definition, we can't expect grace. We don't deserve it. We can't, right? Grace is always undeserved, surprising, and very unjust. And so we can't demand it. And yet that is exactly what we're hoping for and banking on when we return. And so as we approach our wanderers, it's important to understand that this is hard for them. This is vulnerable for them. This is risky and fearful because what will happen if we turn them away? What will happen if we give them what we deserve? All of their fears have, been, have come true and they have nothing left. And so with the long odds and only a slim hope for true restoration and reconciliation, there's a lot of trepidation that goes into wanderers returning. Those fears of being seen and known for who you truly are, of our ugly sinfulness being revealed and then rejected weighs on wanderers and enters into their decision-making. 
And so that's why so many wanderers stay out in the dark, out in the far country, because they're afraid not only of the reception that they will receive at first, but also of the vulnerability that comes when our sins or when our flaws are exposed. You see, restoration requires us to deal with our sin. We can't just sweep things under the rug, just forgiving and forgetting. We don't work like that. The human heart doesn't work like that. When we bury things and don't address them, they merely fester, rot, and infect us with bitterness and anger. And so taking into consideration all that needs to happen to return from wandering, it's a wonder that we see anyone returning from wandering at all. The task before the wanderer and those who receive them back can feel overwhelming and impossible. And yet... Wonder of wonders, that's exactly what Jesus loves to do. He loves to seek and save the lost and to return them to intimacy, to restore them to the kind of relationship with him that they ought to have. And so as we look at Peter's restoration closely, I think there's a lot for us to learn about what it looks like to see restoration happen, to see how Jesus pursues Peter and gets him unstuck from his fears that would keep him from true restoration. And so let's start by looking at Jesus' patience in timing. By the time we get to our passage in verse 15, this is actually the third time that Jesus has seen Peter. The first time was when all the disciples except Thomas were locked in the house and the resurrected Jesus appeared in their midst. Peter was there to see the scars in Jesus' hands, his feet, and his side. And he was also there to receive the Holy Spirit and to be commissioned as an apostle. The second time was when Thomas was able to meet the resurrected Jesus. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. In both instances, Jesus doesn't address the elephant that's in the room, which is Peter's triple denial of him on the night of his betrayal. And what's worse is that Peter knows that Jesus knows. Luke 22 tells us that after the third denial, Jesus looks over and sees Peter and they make eye contact. And it is in that moment that Peter understands what he has just done and he is ashamed. Talk about awkward. Talk about an elephant in the room. Talk about something that stands between them, between uh, Jesus and Peter and relational health. Peter's returned, sure, but he hasn't quite yet been restored. And yet it is also still evident that Jesus loves Peter, that he's part of the plan moving forward. After all, Jesus didn't single Peter out and say, ah, my disciples, all of you get the Holy Spirit, except for you, Peter, you denier. He doesn't say that. He doesn't single Peter out. No, Peter receives the same blessing and commissioning as all the other uh, disciples do. And yet there still isn't the same kind of intimacy between Jesus and Peter because of this elephant in the room. Peter had wandered, repented, and returned, but had not yet been restored. There's still something between Peter and Jesus that hasn't been addressed. And now this is the third time that Jesus has appeared to the disciples. But he doesn't just show up to talk to Peter about the denial. Rather, he comes to meet Peter exactly where he is, and to move him towards dealing with things. 
And so let's look at the beginning then of chapter 21. There we find at, uh, that the seven disciples had returned to Galilee, where they were, um, what were they doing in Galilee? They were in Jerusalem. Were they fleeing uh, bad memories of their time in Jerusalem, their desertion of Jesus in his hour of need, maybe Peter's denial, the gruesome crucifixion? The disciples aren't necessarily right where they ought to be. And in any case, they've returned to Galilee, and they've returned to their old trade of fishing. And it's here that we realize that, in fact, something is very wrong. Jesus had called Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, out of the fisherman's life. He had called them to become fishers of men instead of fishers of fish. And so to go back to fishing for fish and not for men, it seems like they're backsliding into old habits, old callings, and old identities, that they're, in fact, running from who they are as disciples. But even then, Jesus, the Lord, doesn't let them because he keeps them from catching anything in their nets. And that's an important detail. Remember, these are professional fishermen. They know the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias, very well. They know all the hot spots and how to track where all the fish are, They've carved out a living on this patch of water for years, and yet they catch absolutely nothing. And the Lord is setting this up precisely to call Peter out. There is a wonderful parallel with uh, Luke chapter 5, where Peter is initially called to follow Jesus. In that chapter, the same thing happens where Peter and his colleagues have fished all night and caught nothing. And when then Jesus arrives and suddenly their nets are full full to the bursting. But what a change we see in Peter. What's his reaction in Luke 5? Get away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. But here in John 21, what's his reaction? He puts on his clothes, hastily putting them on, and then impulsively casts himself into the water to swim a hundred yards to shore. Why? Because he doesn't want to delay even for a second being with the Lord. In a lot of ways, the very presence of Jesus casts everything else out of his mind. He doesn't care about the fact that his clothes will get soaked. He doesn't care about the 153 fish in his nets that would have represented quite a fair bit of money. He doesn't even care about the fact that he has denied Jesus, and this is a little weird, right? He should feel a little awkward, a little embarrassed, a little strange around his Lord and Savior. No, he simply wants to be with Jesus to return to his rightful place by his side. That's a big change in Peter. And it clues us into what his heart is actually like. And still, even when Peter gets to shore, Jesus doesn't address the elephant in the room, which is interesting because that's why he's there to begin with. He could have appeared on the beach, called them in, said, hey, come on in, we need to chat, sat Peter down and said, let's talk. And yet he doesn't do that. He waits. Instead, he cooks some food and has them eat first. Now let's think about what Jesus has done in the lead up to verse 15, which is when he starts talking to Peter. He has addressed and resolved Peter's present frustrations, the frustrations that are right there in front of his mind. Can you imagine how frustrating it must have been for Peter and his colleagues to spend hours and hours and hours in the cold, wet, and dark on the sea and catch absolutely nothing? 
I don't know about you, but when I'm really frustrated, I don't want to talk about important relational things. I just want to stew on my frustrations. And Jesus deals with it, and he says, look, let me give you fish so that you might know that I'm for you. And more than that, he spent hours on that boat. He's probably not eaten all that much, and what he has eaten has been in frustration and in tiredness and in bitterness. And so what does Jesus do? He calls him down to sit by the fire, to dry out, to warm up, to eat and be filled. I'm also not any good at talking about my feelings, about my emotions, about my relationships when I'm hangry. When I'm hangry, let's just be honest, okay? And so Jesus is again demonstrating for Peter, I am for you, I love you, I want to meet you exactly where you are, and to try to set you up for success when we have this conversation. All of these actions were meant to reinforce and encourage Peter in the reality of Jesus' love for him. And so from all of this, we can learn that we need to be patient and to be wise in our timing when it comes to reconciliation. At the end of the day, after a long week when your wanderer comes home from work and says they've had a particularly rough day, is probably not a good time to talk to them about the way in which they have sinned against you. Or when they haven't slept much because of the anxiety and fear that still plagues them. Probably not a good time to talk. We want to be thoughtful not only, of, not only in how we have our hard, hard conversations and what we talk about, but also when we have these conversations. We want to reinforce truths about connection and care. We want to set our wanderer up for success. Because when we set them up for success, we set ourselves up for success as well. And all of that is balanced by the knowledge that these conversations have to happen. Addressing the elephant in the room has to happen, but it doesn't have to happen all at once or even be the first thing that we address. How willing are we then to live in tension? The tension of unresolved issues for the sake of our wanderer. How willing are we to live with things being less than we would like them to be because we care more about our wanderer and what they need than what we want and our comfort. And all of this can be costly as well in terms of time, money, and emotional and mental energy. We have to think. It costs us something, not only in having a conversation and the money it takes to set them up, to eat, feed them, to clothe them, to house them, to do all of the things that are necessary to welcome them back, to set them up for success. But we have to think about what we're doing to carve out the mental and emotional energy to approach it well. And all of that is exhausting and unfair because they were the ones that left to begin with. And yet, they are well worth it. Is your wanderer worth your effort? If your answer is anything but a resounding yes, there's work to be done in you. And as we get into the passage proper, we can see what that work looks like. We can see that there isn't actually much to the actual restoration. Jesus doesn't say all that much between verses 15 and 19 when he starts talking to Peter. He just pointedly and directly asked Peter if he loved him three times. 
Three times Jesus asked Peter essentially the same question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And after three times around the questions, it's really clear that Jesus was deliberately responding to the three denials. Everyone sees this. Peter sees this. In a way, these three confessions cancel out the three denials. And what's interesting is is that Jesus isn't and doesn't really go after the details of what caused Peter to deny him. He doesn't pin him to the ground and say, why did you do this? He doesn't get a rationale. He just deals with it. He doesn't make him even fess up to the obvious, that he did in fact deny him. Rather, when Jesus confronts Peter, he does so for the sole purpose of restoring him. It's not about making Peter feel bad. It's not about making him see what he did to Jesus through his betrayal. It's not about communicating the magnitude of the fallout that has come from his denial. It's not about any of that, though all of that feels right and just to try to deal with. Rather, it's just about clearing everything away so that there wouldn't be anything between them. It's about showing Peter that Jesus still loves him and values him and wants him. Friends, reconciliation and restoration aren't about you. Reconciliation and restoration is about an us. As a result, most of the work of restoration and reconciliation lies with those receiving wanderers back. Remember, the wanderer doesn't have a leg to stand on. They can't drive the reconciliation and restoration because they don't deserve it. They can't demand it, and so they can't drive it. The ball isn't, in fact, in their courts. It's in yours. It's in ours who are left. We who are left are required to set aside our individual hurts, our suffering, our pain, and our sense of justice if we're to see reconciliation happen. We have to simply love the other person. We are to pursue them and speak to them, seeking to cover over their multitude of sins with love. And we see this approach in the simplicity of Jesus' restoration of Peter. It's not, there's not much to say because forgiveness has already been granted. The work has already been done. The debt has already been paid. There's not much to say. Restoration, in fact, rests upon a foundation of forgiveness. And you can't restore if you haven't already forgiven. And I think this is where the gospel comes in. Our natural inclination is to wait for our wanderer to return so that we can work things out together. And it kind of makes sense, right? There's relational work to be done, things to set straight, confessions and pardons to be made. we got to do this together because how else do we figure this out? but that's not usually how it goes. If we wait for our wanderers to return, to deal ourselves with all the emotions, hurt, and continual suffering that their wandering brings, then as they're wandering, what's going to happen? Those emotions that we're not dealing with, that we're really holding on to, those hurts, those wounds, what will happen to them? They will fester, rot, and breed bitterness. And that bitterness isn't the wanderer's fault. It's yours. Because it's distinct from what they have done. You have done that yourself. And so when they come back, what happens? When we have this knot of bitterness that we have nursed over years, over months, over weeks, 
our wanderer becomes the target because they're convenient and because it's right for them to receive it. And so what happens then to our restoration and our reconciliation when we give them both barrels and blast them for coming home? It's not going to work. What we have done is, a, is nursed a grudge. That's what we've done. And that's the reason why so many of our attempts at restoration and reconciliation fail. We haven't dealt with the pain and the suffering prior to the return. And so when they, become, when they come back, all it is is just, look at what you've done. That's justice, though. And that's getting even when we give them what they deserve. That's not grace. And that's not what Jesus does. That's not what Jesus does for Peter, and that's not what he does for us. Instead, Jesus forgives Peter and us while we were yet sinners. While we were still wandering far from the fold of God, Jesus suffered, bled, and died for us on a cross while taking all of the shame, all of the embarrassment, all of the wrath that we deserve on himself. All that righteous anger that wanderers feel, fear and all that righteous anger that folks that await their return nurse, all of that has already been taken by Jesus. Again, as we look at Jesus' recommissioning with three confessions, we can see that Jesus approaches this restoration not for his own catharsis, not his own vindication, but for Peter's sanctification. Jesus had already forgiven Peter. He had already dealt with all the pain and anguish of Peter's denial and betrayal and paid for it on the cross. And so when he comes to Peter now, there is no heat. There's no bitterness. There's no self-righteousness. There is simply caring for Peter, knowing that the denial weighs heavily on Peter and not on Jesus. Look at how Peter responds to Jesus' questions. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. It's a far cry from the self-confident, arrogant, and brash Peter that we know and love from before his betrayal. Remember that scene at the Last Supper when Jesus reveals that one of the disciples will betray him? Not I, Jesus. I'm Peter. I'm the rock. I'm not going to betray you. If it even means that I have to go to death, I would never betray you. That didn't go very well for him. No, what we see is a humbled and repentant Peter. He's not all that confident in his love for the Lord. Rather, he looks to Jesus to confirm the authenticity of his love. He says, you know all things. You know my heart better than I do myself. Do I actually love you? Tell me instead of asking me. I think I do, but you know better than I do if I do. And with this weight on Peter, the compassion of the Lord comes out. He knows that he has already forgiven him. He knows that all that's standing in the way is really just Peter's guilt over his sin. And that sin, that guilt has already been paid for. And so he goes there not to exact a confession, but he goes there to lift a burden. He's now just enabling him to see the love that has already covered him. And for us, the gospel enables us to do the same thing. Christ enables us to be patient, to wait for the right time to speak and to restore. Christ enables us to live in the tension for others and to try and to pay the cost of living in that tension. Why? Because we have surpassing richness in him. And because of the surpassing security that we 
we have in him, we get to be vulnerable with our wanderers as well. And as we consider the sins committed against us, the wounds given by our wanderers' absence from us, or as they departed from us and from the faith, we are reminded that these sins too have already been paid for by the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. When we come to this table that is set before us, we not only recognize that grace has been given to us, but also been given to others as well. Friends, Jesus has already paid for your wanderers' wanderings. Jesus has given us the foundation upon which to give forgiveness without having to wait for repentance. For such was the salvation and forgiveness given to us. We too were wanderers at one time and often continue to be to a certain degree. And yet the Lord is pleased when we repent and return. And finally, when we are restored by his blood. And so if you're wandering today, if you're hearing about uh, restoration, forgiveness, and reconciliation that can be yours in the gospel, repent and come home, please. Come home. Know that while those you return to might not receive you as they ought to in Christ, that there are still sinners that you're returning to, know that Christ welcomes you and restores you. Know that you're responsible for your repentance and your attempt at reconciliation, that you're bringing yourself before those that you are estranged from. You, that's your responsibility, and the Lord calls you to that, but he doesn't send you alone. He's right there with you, and he enables you to step into that knowing that you are secure in him and welcomed already in him. You see, when we boil everything down, Everything boils down to leading people by the gospel to Jesus through the gospel. We are enabled by Jesus' death, resurrection, and union to us to shepherd wanderers back to Jesus. It is by Jesus, through Jesus, and lastly, for Jesus. If we look at verses 18 and 19, Jesus tells us of what Peter will endure in his life uh, committed to Jesus. There is a long and full life of ministry ahead of him, but also the stretching out of his hands in crucifixion. We know that Peter dies in much the same way that Jesus does, but upside down instead. And it's all for the glory of God. When we situate reconciliation and restoration in the gospel, we glorify God. When we, when we place the focus not on ourselves, but upon the God who changes hearts, and returns sinners and wanderers to himself, and who restores us to intimacy with him, the Lord is glorified because it's not about us, it's about him. There's a lot of work to do when pe people wander, both, on both sides. There's a lot of tears, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain. For the wanderer, the Lord is glorified when you return and repent. But he's also glorified when you place your trust in him and step into a risky process of reconciliation and restoration. There you're living and trusting in him for your everything, enabling you to be vulnerable with each other. For those receiving wanderers back, the Lord is glorified when we embody Christ and extend the kind of love and forgiveness that we were extended and uh, loved by him. He is glorified when we give grace to the wanderer, when we show them Jesus. And so today, 
Today is the day to get started. Today is a good day to begin the process of restoring those estranged for us, being, being by welcome, welcoming them back or praying for their return or doing, if my guess is on the mark, this is most of us, this is the work that we have to do today is forgiving them before they return doing the work that is necessary in order to remove all the heat, all the bitterness, all the pain and suffering so that we can return, we can receive them with joy, seeking to love them and to restore them. And so let us run to Jesus for our restoration and the restoration of those whom we love. Let's pray. Father God, we... We don't like doing work, especially work that makes us vulnerable, vulnerable to new hurts, new pains, new sufferings, new rejections. And Lord, that is exactly what you call all of us to do if we're wanderers or if we're those receiving wanderers back. And so Lord, enable us to see you to see the love and joy that we have in you, to see the security that we have in you, knowing that we have already been paid for and that we have our whole being in you. Lord, show us that the truths of the gospel enable us to step into hard things, that we might not have to find our vindication in the confessions and laments of those that have hurt us that we might find our healing in you, that we might turn and extend that same healing to those that desperately need it, our wanderers. And so, Lord, would you return those that are wandering far from you and far from us to us and to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.